Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Today we are talking about Spin by Robert Charles Wilson. Now it's rare that I have two books from the same author in the same semester. But this time I did it for a special reason because this book adds a new dimension that his previous book that we just talked about did not do. And sometimes I have done two, author, two books from the same author, for example, uh, Isaac Asimov, the Foundation Trilogy, and then sometimes I've included one of his other, his other books as well, and Ursula Le Guin. So The Dispossessed and The Left Hand of Darkness, sometimes I've assigned both of those in the same class. But normally it's one book per author, uh, with one exception usually, and this is, a, this is that exception. Robert Charles Wilson Spin. And the reason I wanted to include this book is because very similar to the last book, but in a new way, this book raises issues, political issues, that are more similar to the types of things that we would expect to encounter in our world, in your lifetime. The, the futures that he has are more sort of believable from us in the sense that humanity's state of evolution is about the same as what it is now. Just something unusual happens. So let's talk about the basic premise behind spin. Everything is fine one day, and then suddenly the stars go out. Now this may seem preposterous. What do you mean the stars go out? And it turns out that, as we discover later in the book, that an extraterrestrial species has in fact put a cloak over the entire planet and that the cloak that's over the entire planet shuts out the light. And the cloak that's over the entire planet is actually a time shield so that what goes on inside the cloak or around Earth is slowed down and what goes on outside, outside of the cloak, is relatively speaking, sped up. Now, this may seem sort of weird, sort of bizarre. Like, how can you have time displaced like that? But we do know that in our experiments in physics, all types of anomalies like that do, in fact, occur. And that we want to be able to sort of say, well, let's speculate that we're a million years ahead of our current evolution. And what kind of technology would be possible? And so... Let's, before we ask a why these extraterrestrial species would want to put a cloak around Earth, and then what, would, what was the response of humans to any type of extraterrestrial type of impact, some type of unexplained impact, let's sort of go through a couple of the odd things that happen in our life, in real life, in, in physics labs, that are sort of really weird that we don't know about in terms that we don't know the reason for them. Well, let's talk about something that happened early in the book. Remember there were some cosmonauts that were up in space early in the book. And suddenly they couldn't see Earth anymore. And they were looking down and they said, we just got here. And like, what are we supposed to do? So they stayed up there for a couple of weeks looking down and said, there was supposed to be a planet below us. 
and they lost communications, and they finally decided to come on down, just risk it. And so, based on their last position, they just tried to go for it, and they came down and they crashed. But one survived, and then he was interrogated uh, and said, you know, what happened? He said, well, we were up there for two weeks. We were running out of food. We had no choice. And the people said, what was the response of the people? Do you remember? It came down the same night as all the other satellites. Was that? It came down the same night as all the other satellites. Yeah, they said, you're lying. How could you do it? You just went, you came down immediately. You went up and came down. We just don't believe you. Strange things happen. Now, I want to talk about a, something in physics that has been known for about, for a long time. Um, it's been debated for a very long time, you know, over a hundred years. I mean, it's been a, about a hundred years people have been sort of wondering about it. It's called the two-slit experiment. And I want to explain why this is so weird and why this has caused such controversy. Well, the two-slit experiment, I'm actually going to do a diagram on the board to describe it. And then I'm going to describe some of the controversies, some of the arguments that have happened as people have talked about it. You have a light source, and this light source is a monochromatic light source, red, say. And they usually use lasers, although you could use a regular light and send it through a prism just to get the color red, but they want the same frequencies. So you have this light source here. Let's call it a red laser, okay? And then they have a barrier with a small hole in it, and that barrier will have that aperture that will let some light in. Now, that aperture can be varied. It can be made smaller or larger. And the intensity of the laser can be made dimmer or brighter. Now, further into the apparatus, they have another barrier that has two slits in it. That's why it's called the two-slit experiment. And so, let's make the two slits a little bit closer to the original aperture. Okay? And then after that, they have a light detection plate. Let's just call it a photographic plate. It's a very, it's a very sensitive thing. It's not like film emulsion, but let's just say it's a, you know, like a photographic plate. Now, light comes in through the first aperture. It comes, at, it starts out at the laser. Comes, goes into the first aperture, and then it's the light is in the system. And then the light hits the second barrier that has two slits, and then two beams of light come through because it's got two slits. Think of yourself as a surfer. Do you know that there are actual attachments that you can buy for the motorcycle? that allows you to carry your surfboard on the motorcycle, just in case you're interested in knowing that. That's one of the next two-buy things that I'm going to get. Nonetheless, imagine yourself surfing, and you're at the pier, and there is a pier in the way, and you're looking at the waves, and what happens is a couple piers right in the way. Well, the waves, they sort of break around the pier, right? And then there's waves on the other side, and then the waves sort of come around the other side of the pier, and they start messing with each other. Like the piers broke up the waves, but then the waves on the other side start spanning out, fanning out, and start interfering with each other. Well, look, you've got light going through the two slits. And then once the light goes through the two slits, it starts to fan out. Now, when it starts to fan out, 
the light starts bumping into itself because it's going through both slits and then the light from both slits is bumping into each other. Now, what happens if you have the crest of a wave bumping into the trough of another wave? Pardon me? They cancel each other out. They're flat. What if you have a crest bumping into another crest? They come together. Okay? In quantum mechanics, they call that like a superposition. They sum together. Boom, you get a big wave. So what happens if they cancel out? Well, light has a wave and particle properties. So, as the theory goes, until it actually hits the photographic plate, it's a wave. And so the waves of light are interacting. And so when you get a, cre a crest interacting with the trough, they cancel out. And when that light hits the photographic plate, there's nothing because it canceled out. Nothing's there. One wave cancels another, flat, darkness. But in those situations where the crest bumps into a crest, you get a superposition, and then it hits the photographic plate, you get a hit with a photon. So, if you have a bunch of light going through this, this single aperture, and then two slits, then hitting the two slits, and then you have two sets of waves, two slits of light interacting together, you get what's down, down here on the photographic plate as a banded pattern. Some areas are dark, and some areas are light, and it's actually a banded pattern. By the way, this is not drawn to scale. These two slits are more close together than the width of a human hair, so you're, you know it's clearly not drawn to scale because light, we're talking very small uh, frequencies and very small uh, dimensions here. So, but nonetheless, what we have here is a banded pattern. Now, let us say through both dimming the laser and shrinking the initial aperture that's next to the laser, you can make it so that you only let one photon at a time into the system. You get the idea? Only one little guy at a time is let in. Well, if you have one photon at a time, it runs into the two slits. Now, we know it's one photon because after we let it in, it makes one dot on the photographic plate. So it was one guy. Now, you let that photon in there, and it has to choose one of the two slits in the two-slit part of the experiment. It has to choose which way to go. It's got to go either to the right or to the left. And it picks one, and sure enough, boom, makes a dot. And then you let another photon into the system. Again, restricting it to one photon at a time by shrinking the aperture and dimming the light. You can make it to a little bit of light gets in. One photon at a time, and ding, another dot will show up. And you get two dots, okay? All right. Well, what if you let that go for a long, long, long time? You get a whole bunch of dots, right? Well, they do that. And you know what happens? You get a pattern. The same pattern that you had when you had a whole bunch of light going through there. A banded pattern. That means the crests and the troughs were interacting. <coughs> and canceling each other out. And then you say, well, how the heck can that happen? We only had one photon at a time in the system. How in the world could it be canceling each other? How can it be? What's it canceling with? There's only one. There's only one. How can it cancel? It canceled. What do you mean a trough is hitting a crest? What other crest and what other trough? There's only one guy in there. 
It can't be running into anything. So you shouldn't get a banded pattern. But you do get a banded pattern, even with one photon at a time. And so the question came about, what's causing the banded pattern? And there's been a hundred years of quantum mechanics that have been debating this from the very beginning. No one's been able to figure it out. But there was one guy called Hugh Everett. And Hugh Everett was a physics student, brilliant graduate student, and he came up with an idea. He said, well, actually, I bet we live in a dimensional realm that's much larger than the three dimensions that we see. And that the three dimensions that we see are actual projections from this larger dimensionality. And if that's the case, then the understanding of quantum mechanics could be that everything is frequency-based, and if everything's frequency-based, there could be uh, many frequencies sort of existing at the same time. So maybe there's other worlds, other realms, alternate universes, things like that. And so what's happening when you have this one photon going through the system at a time, what is it interacting with? Well, it hasn't registered yet in our universe. And until it does, it's interacting with all of its other brethren in the other realms. Because, as John Wheeler said, nothing actually registers, nothing actually happens. Nothing actually becomes a real thing in our universe until it registers somehow. Until it's observed somehow. Now, Einstein used to mock this by saying to his quantum mechanics colleagues, are you telling me that the moon would go away if we don't look at it? Are you really telling me that? But well, you see, that was a big debate. And that's what people were debating about. But whoever was saying, well, you know, everything that's on the quantum level, we're all built out of it, so unless it's, John Wheeler said, unless you actually, unless it's registered in some way, measured some way, observed in some way, it doesn't actually happen. So what whoever said is, there must be other realms that these interactions are occurring with. Otherwise, you wouldn't get a banded pattern. It's got to be interacting with something. Otherwise, the, inter the banded pattern would not exist. Now, if you look at writings by Stephen Hawking, he still says it's one of the great mysteries. Unresolved mysteries. Well, what happened to Hugh Everett? Well, a few people said he's a genius, and they wanted him to talk, but almost everybody else laughed at him ridiculed him. You know what he finally did? He said, gave everybody the bird and said, I'm going to get out of this. Physics isn't so interesting. You come up with an interesting idea like this and the whole universe sort of yells at you and laughs at you. He left and he went into the corporate world and started doing inventions. He actually left academia because he said it's too stifling. You get the idea? Very interesting. All because he thought of another thing. And now it turns out that people are thinking that this multiple dimensionality stuff is actually real, decades later. And that we may be projections from that. And one of the things that they are doing with the Holodron Collider out in Europe is actually trying to test that idea right now and to see if there is a multiple reality type of thing. In the sense, if there are, according to the string theorists, they like to think that there might be like 11... There's no one set string theory. There are many string theories. But String, there are string theorists, and they all talk about the various ideas related to strings. They think of the, all of the reality as being frequency-based, and they sort of say that there might be like 11 dimensions. You talk to other string theorists, you'll get different numbers of dimensions. But the basic idea is that our three are projections from that larger set. How many people know what a phase space, what a phase diagram is? 
That's why you should take math. Phase diagrams are really cool. You get to think about new things. A phase diagram is a situation where you're looking at a larger dimensional thing and looking at its projection onto a smaller dimensional thing. Very often you deal with boxes and rabbits. That <coughs> For example, if you have rabbits here on this axis and foxes on this axis, do you know what rabbits do when you leave them alone? They eat your carrots in the backyard and the grass and everything else, and they beget new rabbits. And so if you start out with some rabbits here, you find out that the rabbits are growing and growing and growing, and the, there's a ton of rabbits out there, until there's so many rabbits that there's a rabbit around every tree. Go ahead. Okay. There's a rabbit around every tree. And then what happens to the foxes? The foxes are saying, oh my gosh, this is better than going to Walmart. Look, there's rabbits everywhere. And they start eating the rabbits. And so the fox population starts going up. There's rabbits because there's, and now there's foxes, and there's foxes all over the place. Until the foxes start eating all the rabbits, notice that the fox dimension is up now, but the rabbit dimension is going down, and then what happens? They suddenly realize, holy Moses, what are we going to do now? There's no more rabbits to eat, we ate them all. And then the foxes start dying off. Starvation hits. The foxes start dying off, and then we have a world in which there's hardly any more foxes, just a couple. And the rabbits look around and say, this is heaven, look, there's your turnips and your, and your carrots in your backyard, and there's grass, and so the rabbits start doing what they always did, and they begat new rabbits, and then there's a ton of rabbits, and suddenly the few foxes that were left say, this is better than Walmart, look at this, there's rabbits everywhere, and they start eating all the rabbits, and they eat up all the rabbits until they finally, the foxes are saying, this is awful, there's starvation, there's no more rabbits to eat, and the foxes start, and it goes on and on and on, do you get the idea? This is a phase diagram. It's actually projected from something else. You see, time, you saw the movie The Avatar? Wear those 3D glasses. And then time is an axis that's actually coming out from the board. You have to duck. Because what's happening here is this is not really an ellipse that's happening on the board. It's actually a slinky spring toy that's coming out here because it's coming out in time. You get the idea? And what you're doing is you're taking the slinky toy and sitting it up against the board. What you've done is you've compressed one dimension, meaning this system is taking place in three dimensions and you're showing it in two. It's being projected into two. You can also think of it as a light in the back shining onto the slinky toy and what you're getting here is the shadow. Does it make sense? So what you're doing is you have a n minus 1 representation of the system. You started out with three dimensions, but you're ending up with an n minus 1. And eventually you can have surfaces that are n minus 1 surfaces with all of these funny things going on. And what is an n minus 1 surface called? It's a hypersurface. And so what we are our hypersurfaces living in phase space from a physics point of view. You get the idea? So we have other dimensions, and if you live on this flat plane, you don't see anything. You're a flat lander. You don't see the other dimensions. And as far as you're concerned, this is all of the existence that exists. 
But if you're outside of that, in a wider consciousness, you can sort of say, look at all these ants running around on this flat surface. They're so stupid, they don't know that there's other dimensions. There's, there's a vertical dimension as well. It's not just flat you walk on. Do you get the idea? So here we are, stuck in flatland, without being able to see the other dimensions. But the two-slit experiment is an indication that this anomaly indicates that there's something else going on. And Chris Everett says, you can't, I mean, Chris, Hugh Everett, Hugh Everett said, you can't walk away from that. It's something that's been replicated. Every first-year graduate student, every first-year graduate student in physics does this experiment first year in the physics lab and replicates it. And every first-year graduate student scratches his or her head and says, that's really weird. One photon at a time. What the heck was it interacting with? And they threw, and, and Hugh Everett just left. Because he was left it. So, that's a very interesting story for a variety of reasons, but it allows us to get into this novel in a new and interesting way. Because what we're going to see is that human reactions are very much weird like that. Now let's start let's start reading some of the parts of the book. Oh go ahead. Uh, I just think of uh, some like interesting idea I just read. Uh, like we see the ants in two dimensions. Yeah. And if we pick up an ant and that 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 those ants will think the ant we pick up disappeared because they can't see the ant anymore. Yeah. If there are like creatures Existing outside of three dimensions, and somebody that kind of creature like pick a human being up in the, the other dimensions, and that human being will appear, dis will disappear. In three well, actually, that's an interesting point you're raising. You're a you're asking about what actually create what actually could create something to appear real, like we're all seeing each other, and then. What would make it so that there could be another version of us that we couldn't see? Just like in the two-slit two experiment, what could create another version of a photon that we wouldn't see? And so <clears throat> that's where you get into aspects of physics called uh, superposition. And that's where you have waves that combine to each other. They add together and they produce a wave packet, which is a collection of Oh, various wave forms. Just you can think of it as sort of a plane wave, various plane waves sort of being added together in a state of superposition. And the superposition principle is a mathematics principle, but essentially it means you're adding waves together, and they produce in combination when they're added a blip, a space where there's sort of a bulge, and that bulge could be understood probabilistically as saying that the particle is somewhere inside that bulge. And so what they make is they make probability distributions out of these wave packets that are constructed out of a whole bunch of separate waves. Okay, so the real question is, <clears throat> well, what if the frequencies were changed a little? Then the wave packet from which, within which the particle exists wouldn't be there. So none of those waves would be relevant. They wouldn't be interacting in a sense that that packet where this particle is only makes sense given that certain collection of waves. You change the frequencies 
and another wave packet will form, but those two waves, those two wave packets won't be together. They will be out of sync from each other. So if you, as people, are a what you might call a highly aggregated ensemble of wave packets in a state of superposition, then any other versions of you that have slightly slight frequency dis, slight frequency differences would be out of phase from you as you see yourself and you simply wouldn't see them they would be invisible to you because they would not be in your superposition does it make sense unless it syncs up with you it's invisible to you that's what very advanced physicists debate these days things like that but the point is <clears throat> when you have ideas like this it doesn't cause it doesn't cause physicists to nod and say that's wonderful it causes them to yell at each other and so like one graduate student was talking to a physicist and it was physicist and a well-known example and said uh, well then how do we know all of this is real I mean this is all this, we could all be in like states of superposition this could be nothing how could this be real and the physicist actually stubbed his toe on the curb or something like that and he said because that hurt I stub my toe I know I'm real that hurt you get the idea you sort of break it down to the emotional responses people are funny but now let's let's translate this into the book let's go to page 30 I, I'm sorry I had the hard cover so now we have to deal with this um, I'm in the chapter called coming of age in boiling water and uh on my page, it's page 31. What is it on yours? I don't know what the, what the section is, but the chapter is 18. Chapter 18? No, the chapter is on page 18. Oh, the chapter page starts on page 18? Yeah. In, in your books, and the paperback version. <clears throat> yeah, normally I have the paperback, but um, this time the publishers actually sent the hardback. And so I... All right, in that chapter... Uh, look for the section that starts after three dots. It says, it took a dozen years for the truth to be made public. Page 30. Pardon me? Page 30. Page 30? Okay, mine's on page 31, so we're fairly close. And this is the cosmonaut one. This is the cosmonaut story. <clears throat> I'll just read it quickly, because there's only a couple things I want to add other than the stuff that we already talked about. It took a dozen years for the truth to be made public. But when it was finally published as a footnote to a European history in the early spin years, I thought of the day at the mall. What happened was this. Three Russian cosmonauts had been in orbit in the, uh, in, uh, the night of the October event, returning from a housekeeping mission to the moribund International Space Station a little after midnight Eastern Standard Time, the mission commander, a Colonel Leonid Glavin, noted a loss of signal from ground control and made repeated but unsuccessful efforts to reestablish contact. Alarming as this must have been for the cosmonauts, it got worse fast. When the Soyuz crossed from the night side of the planet into dawn, it appeared that the planet they were circling had been replaced with a lightless black orb. Colonel Gavin, Glavin would eventually, just would eventually describe it just that way as a blackness and an absence visible only when it occluded the sun, a permanent ellipse 
the rapid orbital cycle of sunrise and sunset was their only convincing visual evidence that the Earth even existed any longer. Sunlight appeared abruptly from behind the silhouetted disk, cast no reflection in the darkness below, and vanished just as suddenly when the capsule slid into light, into night. <coughs> the cosmonauts could not have comprehended what had happened, and their terror must have been unimaginable. After a week spent orbiting the vacuous darkness, beneath them the cosmonauts voted to attempt an unassisted re-entry rather than remain in space or attempt a docking at the empty ISS to die on Earth or whatever Earth had become rather than starve in isolation. But without ground guidance or visual landmarks, they were forced to rely on calculations extrapolated from their last known position. As a result, the Soyuz capsule re-entered the atmosphere at a perilously steep angle, absorbed punishing G-forces, and lost a critical parachute during the descent. The capsule came down hard on a forested hillside in the Ruhr Valley. Vasily Golubev was killed on impact. Valentina Kirchhoff suffered a traumatic head injury and was dead within hours. A dazed Colonel Clavin, with only a broken wrist and minor abrasions, managed to exit the spacecraft and was eventually discovered by the German search and rescue team and repatriated to Russian authorities. After repeated debriefings, the Russians concluded that Glavin had lost his mind as a result of his ordeal. The colonel continued to insist that he and his crew had spent three weeks in orbit, but that was obviously madness. Because the Soyuz capsule, like every other recovered piece of man-made orbital gear, had fallen back to Earth the very night of the October event. What can we draw from this? First, from the very first paragraph, it took a dozen years for the truth to be made public, but when it was finally published as a footnote to a European history of the early spin years, I thought of the day at the mall. What happened was this. So what about what about that part of it? The two time frames contradict themselves. The two time frames, like the one that the cosmonauts has happened and the one yes. on Earth, contradict themselves. And so people don't really want to deal with that. Um, they want to, uh, like, it's a footnote, so obviously they don't want to look into why that's really different. Um, well, what does it mean to say it took a dozen years for the truth to be made public, <clears throat> but when it was finally published as a footnote? <clears throat> what's happening there? Not only did they refuse to believe the story, and then and lab they labeled him a, uh, an insane person. And then even after it had become clear that he was right, they still kept it a secret just to avoid uh, losing credibility as a governor. Okay, you're blending a couple things here, but that's good. Go ahead. I think it's similar to what we were talking about um, last week with uh, uh, Blind Lake, how people are very reluctant to believe in ideas that aren't necessarily like a given. So this idea, like, they were reluctant to believe in the idea that there were different time frames going on there. For, like, the same way that in Blind Lake they were reluctant to believe that they were going into a quarantine or that perhaps their alien subject might be... Okay, but now you're sort of blaming it on the people. Um, but look at it here. It took a dozen years for the truth to be made public. Go ahead. Is the government is reluctant to tell people the truth and to... Uh, like fearing that people will go nuts or something. Well, that's true. Except I would like to combine your comment with Rowan's comment. 
I would like to say it's actually a combination. The populace, the leadership always reflects the consciousness of the populace. It's never a situation where the government is bad, never, and the people are good, and the government's just repressing the people. There's always a collaboration. The people like to be led the way they are being led. And if you institute radical change, often you get chaos. Now, think of it this way. <clears throat> My son has a parakeet. And when you make a lot of noise around the parakeet, what the parakeet does is turns its back to you. It doesn't want to see it. You're disturbing its world, ruffling its feathers. It doesn't like it. Okay? It doesn't want to hear that. Well, let us say you're a leader and you say of a nation. And you say, well, I think it's people should be told X, Y, and Z. What will they likely tell you? Get out of there. We'll vote for somebody else. So, when you explain to people what the truth is, you're actually like force-feeding somebody. And they'll, they'll kick you in the teeth for doing that. So, it's never a situation where the leadership is bad and the public is good. And they're being deceived. But, nonetheless, there is a collaboration that goes on. The leadership holds the information and the public willingly likes that. Okay? People, meaning they're... Einstein once said it. Ideas have to be ready. It's not that an idea is bad or good, but its time has to, be, has to arrive. And when the time of an idea arrives, then it finally becomes public. So what we have is it took a dozen years for the truth to be made public, which means it took a dozen years for the leadership to tell people what actually happened, and a dozen years for the people living in a starless world to be ready to listen <laughs> to what actually happened. That combination... That's very interesting. And then, when we go back to the beginning of the event, <clears throat> now we get to the point where you had was made with what happened is when the colonel came back and said, look, I'm telling you what happened. They said, and this is a classic comment, you're crazy, you're deluded. That's the type of response that Hugh Everett got when he raised the issue of the two-slit experiment. I mean, you had a clear anomaly. You had a single photon interacting with something. It clearly is interacting with something that you're not seeing because there's only one photon hitting the photographic plate. It's got to be interacting with something and, it's, and whatever it's interacting with, you're obviously not seeing. So it's got to be something that's elsewhere. So Hugh Everett's idea was very reasonable in its day. And now... Physicists are finally saying, that's a pretty clever idea. Q. Everett by that time had long gone out of physics, but you get the idea? The time, the, the idea may have been correct, and now they may be spending huge megabucks with the Haldron Collider trying to find out if, in fact, there are other dimensions. But the reality is, a good idea, as good as it was, its, its time was not ready. The people were not ready for it. And you cannot blame the leadership of the physics community back then. They just weren't there yet. Hugh Everett was a prophet in a sense. He was able to see something before its time. Always there will be people in society that you will be, who will be able to see things and describe things that are very advanced before their time. Always they will be ridiculed if their ideas are out of sync 
with what the populace is capable of thinking at the time, both in terms of the leadership and the, and the populace itself. <coughs> and it will be called deluded. Let's go to another passage. Now, I'm going to page 71. Let's see what it is in the paperback. Uh, this is the chapter that's called No Single Thing Abides. What chapter number is that? It's 71 for us, too. Pardon me? It's 71 for us, too. It's 71 for you, too? Do you see that thing where it says, uh, No in all honesty? I admire Jason Lawton. Um, actually, let me change something. That's a good, that's a good quote, but I, I want to get to that second. I want to introduce that via a different passage. Let's change. Let's go over to... Um, let's go over to page 23, which is in the beginning of the chapter, Coming of Age in Boiling Water. And to the section that starts, starts on page two of that chapter. And many terrible things did happen as a consequence of that night. Are we there? Did you find it? Yeah, it's on page 19. What was that? Page 19. You're page 19? And many terrible things did happen as a consequence of that night, the night that all went dark. Okay? So let's read that. And many terrible things did happen as a consequence of that night, although most of them were obscured by media blackouts. News story traveled like whispers, squeezed through transatlantic fiber optic cable rather than ricocheted through orbital space. It was almost a week before we learned that the Pakistani Haft V missile, or five missile, tipped with a nuclear warhead, launched by mistake or miscalculation in the confusing first moments of the event, had strayed off course and vaporized an agricultural valley and a Hindu Kush. It was the first nuclear device detonated in war since 1945, and tragic as that event was, given the global paranoia ignited by the loss of telecommunications, we were lucky it only happened once. According to some reports, we nearly lost Tehran, Tel Aviv, and Pyongyang. What do we get from here? That might be relevant to our understanding of politics today. Part of, of at least in Wilson's opinion, yeah. part of what is keeping our society, our international society, mostly peaceful mm -hmm. is our ability to communicate everywhere in the world on a relatively simultaneous basis. And when that got taken out, there was an, an instant ignition. Excellent point. So, so the ability to communicate yes. brought Precisely. down all types of chaos. Now, remember something we were talking about? Uh, go ahead. It's not maybe not quite so much the ability to communicate, but the ability to know what's going on, yeah. which is a function of communication. Because when people don't know what's going on, they get scared. They're afraid that basically someone's going to sneak up on them and attack them. Yeah. And so they attack first. Excellent. So that breakdown in communications. Go ahead. Well, that too, but it's the sudden change, the sudden like revolutionizing of the world that causes panic. Our government is perfect in the panic. Chaos, panic, when sudden change happens. Go ahead. 
I like Dustin's idea a lot of how the world has become extremely dependent on instant communication. Like maybe it wasn't so, I'm sure we've had some level of international peace before we had this kind of instant communication, but the relationship between countries, since not just tele telephones, but the internet and all that must have become a lot more peaceful and they don't have to worry like what kind of Mm -hmm. other countries are up to. If you think about like what they did after the Cuban Missile Crisis to kind of alleviate the, the tensions that had almost led to the nuclear crisis there, they put a direct line of communication between Moscow and Washington, D.C. Yeah, and suddenly what happens if all that goes away? Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is that we are facing a situation according to NASA in 2012 and 2013 where coronal mass ejections are expected to literally not do that to our communication. So let us say that they're not so bad as to knock out the power grid. So let us say the lights still work. But according to NASA, what is very likely to happen that we will have periods of time, lengthy periods of time, uh, not just days, but months, where all communications will be knocked out. Sorry to interrupt and possibly tangent, but um, I wrote a paper like uh, concerning like, solar, possible solar storms. Is that like the coronal mass ejections? Like yes. Solar storms are those coronal mass ejections. And for some reason, not well explained, we were talking about it previously, uh, NASA is predicting 2012 and 2013 to be doozies. Actually, to start around late 2012, but then it really around mid-2013 to be just huge. And, and so a series of coronal mass ejections that will be very similar to the one that hit in 1859, but... Uh, there was also one in 1989 in Quebec. Yeah, but the one that, that, that knocked out the power grid in Quebec, but the one in 1859 was much bigger and affected a much larger. And we're talking about something that would affect the whole planet and telecommunications would be knocked out completely because so much of our telecommunications are dependent upon uh, computers. And so let us say it's not so bad as to knock out the power grid. That's what they're really worried about. Let us just say that it parallels what we have in the book, which is knocking out communications. That means the telephone line between the White House and Moscow would go down. That means your cell phones wouldn't work. It means Fox News wouldn't be broadcasting. It means Internet wouldn't work. It means you couldn't use your credit cards. There'd be a lack of information. You couldn't just pick up and call people. And what happens when you have that lack of communication is you get panic. Now, we know that happens in reality because of earthquakes. For example, there was a 5.6 magnitude earthquake that happened in Los Angeles not too long ago, a couple of few years back. And what the phone company found out is that their entire phone system went down immediately. It was just, it completely crashed. They couldn't handle the phones. So it just went off. It went offline. They just, nobody could get a call through. The whole communication system panicked. So, in addition to the coronal mass ejections knocking out the communications ability, you're also going to have an intense desire to use the ability. So that combination of whatever's left of the communication network being overwhelmed, plus a degradation of the over, of the of the network, would mean that the network will simply go down. And we're not talking, according to NASA, we're not talking about a day or a couple hours, we're talking months. So, in that situation, when panic does hit, what do we know about the leadership? 
from this passage, it says the leadership loses it. According to this science fiction projection by Robert Charles Wilson, the leadership loses it. And some people just blow it. And in this case, we had a Pakistani nuclear attack. You get the idea? High levels of risk occur at at those points in time. That we no longer have an ability to control the masses. The masses are out of control. And the leadership... The leadership is, you know, whatever potency it had before is wiped out in situations like that. Now let's go back over to that spot that I wanted to talk to you about. And that's on page, my page 71. And you said it's your page, what, 70? It's in the chapter, No Single Things Abide. It's a section that says, No, in all art, honesty, I admire Jason Lawson. The chapter starts on page 70. What's that? The chapter starts on page 70. Oh, your chapter starts on page 70? Yes. Okay, well, look for that section. It's a very short section I'll read. No, in all honesty, I admire Jason Lawton. Oh, 79. 79. Page 79? Okay. Okay. No, and, um, actually, they're talking about uh, Jason Lawson and uh, the issue of religion. Uh, actually, let me go up a couple paragraphs before it, which is only a few lines because there's dialogue. Some people call it Christian hedonism. I prefer New Kingdom. That's the idea in a nutshell, really. Build the chiliasm by living it. Right here and now. Make the last generation as idyllic as the very first. Uh-huh. Well, Jay doesn't have much patience with religion. No, he doesn't. But you know what, Tyler? I don't think it's the religion that upsets him. No? No, in all honesty, I admire Jason Lawton. And not just because he's famously smart. He's one of the... Uh, how do you pronounce that? Cognoscenti. Cognoscenti? We'll call it Cognoscenti. If you'll pardon a $10 word. He takes the spin seriously. There are, what, 8 billion people on Earth? And pretty much each and every one of them knows at the very least, that the stars and moon have disappeared out of the sky. But they go on living in denial. Only a few of us really believe in the spin. N.K. takes it seriously, and so does New New Kingdom, and so does Jason. What's going on here that we can gather that might be of use to us? After the October event, people see... Uh, the stars and moon disappear, but they, they, doesn't, they don't want to believe it, and they resort to religion to, for console. In times of great panic, yeah. times of great chaos, people go and resort to religion. Now, I want to tell you a Catholic story. <clears throat> right after 911, I'm a. I used to be a cantor. I, I not cantor at this that particular church, but I used to be a cantor up at Holy Spirit Catholic Church up in Mount Paran Road, and uh, it's one of the richest parishes in the, the United States. It's a very wealthy parish, and 
It's a nice, it's a nice venue to do cantering in. But um, the story that I'm telling you about now is a different aspect of that church. In the early days, <clears throat> a number of years back, they didn't used to have masses on a daily basis. Uh, a few times a week and then on Sunday. And then a few of the people started to tell the Monsignor and the other priests, why don't you have them every day? So they would have them every day. They decided to give it a try to see how many people would show up. And then they noted that a number of people showed up every day, so they kept on having them, but they're always wondering about whether to stop. And, uh, I mean, if five or six people showed up, a lot of people show up on Sundays, but if five or six people showed up on the daily Mass in the evening, eh, they'd be happy, happy enough. And then 9-1-1 happened. 9-1-1. The terrorist event of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The attack in New York and Washington. That very next Friday, which was like a, right after the event, it was standing room only. Everybody was there. The, the church was packed. They couldn't have the daily mass in the small chapel, which housed a few people nicely. They had to put them in the big church, which is a huge, a huge deal, a big deal. It was standing room only. It was packed, 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 packed. You get the idea? What happened to the masses? They simply didn't understand. Why should somebody attack us? We're supposed to be the good guys. And suddenly... And now, there really is no connection between going to church and the attack on the World Trade Center. I mean, they have nothing to do with one another. But that's what happened. People turned to religion to grasp some sense of what... Of what, what, kind, what kind of meaning might be possible to extract from the situation. This is an excellent point that you raise. People turn to faith as some bridge when the reasoning and the rationale breaks down. And this is what Jason is reacting to. Meaning, he's saying, look, it's not going to help you just to go on faith. You got to look at the reality as it really is and stare at it. This is why I brought up the two slit experiment. This is what the physicists were not able to do. The physicists saw the anomaly, the banded pattern. It was clear as that. And nobody disputes this experiment in terms of the physical reality of the experiment. But whoever put two and two together and said, let's, let's come to an grips with what this is meaning. Obviously, the photons are interacting with something, or otherwise there wouldn't be a banded pattern. Period. So, where are they interacting? It must be somewhere else. So, there must be a somewhere else. So, there must be other realms. They must be interacting with photons somewhere else. It makes perfect logical sense. But it contradicted faith. It was anomaly. It contradicted faith in what? What did the physicists have faith in that that explanation contradicted? Like the visible realm. That's almost. exactly right. It's like our own sense of importance. Yes, and our own, our own sensory inputs. Our own, the physical realm. I see the physical realm. I hear it. I touch. I taste it. I touch it. 
and you're telling me that there may be something else? I can't really trust it? There could be other things going on in other dimensions that are that, that I'm a projection from that? They It attacked their faith. And it was just too much for them. And what you get is only a few people, the very rare people, are able to sit in a situation like that and free themselves from that dependency on faith and figure out what's going on. It's always rare. It's always rare. And in historical times, those people have typically been called prophets. And normally, they're ridiculed. That was what Hugh Everett had. And in fact, that's what people like Jason Lawton are involved in. They have to basically isolate. There's nothing they can really do to help the masses. They can't deal with them. They can't just sort of say, let me explain it. Hugh Everett tried, and the experiment was clear as day. It didn't matter. No matter of explanation will work. So sometimes you literally have to walk away from the masses and say, they're not there yet. It's not that you're spurning them. It's not that you're looking down with them. It's just that there's nothing you can really do. There's nothing you can do with them. And that's the same with the leadership. So you do your own stuff. And that's what Hugh Everett decided to do. Go off and do his own stuff. The ready, the ideas will be ready when they're ready. Now, this has happened a lot to science fiction writers. Philip K. Dick is one of the great science fiction writers. We sometimes read some of his works in this course. Philip K. Dick always wanted to make it big. He was always saying, "Why aren't I, you know, a millionaire? These ideas are really great." He was always in poverty. He was always struggling. And after he died, eventually, people put two and two together. They were eventually ready for Philip K. Dick. And then, one movie after the next, after the next. If he was alive today, he'd be a multi, multi, huge millionaire. Do you get the idea? His ideas were great, but they didn't resonate with the people at the time. And that's what we're talking about here. When big things change... Only a few people will really recognize it. And in politics, never, ever expect the normal leadership, political leadership, to be the ones who break down the barriers. If you really want to know what's going on, always look for the, the solitary voices that speak. Now, we know this in the level of science in one way. Max Planck told us that science really changes not because someone comes up with a good idea and then suddenly everyone says, wow, that's really great. That paradigm that we were having before is wrong. Throw it out. Science changes generationally. You have to wait until the people who are established to scientists basically get old, retire, and die. And then they were replaced by the younger people who were seeing some of these cool ideas in the beginning when they were in graduate school. And then they get replaced. Generational replacement really is the thing that really helps bring about this level of change in science. Okay, now I'm going to go to another section. And by the way, you know what you have to do. You know what your job is. Your job is to have one or two sections, minimally, per student that you are going to want to read. And you can see how many interesting sections there are in this book. Now I'm going to... So on, on Tuesday when we come back, you must have one or two sections that you're going to read. Now I'm going to go over to page 109. Now let me see what chapter this is in. Under the skin. 
So what chapter is under the skin? And um, it's the section that starts with, he shook his head. It's too late for them to leave us alone. 116 is when the chapter begins. 116 is when the chapter begins. So it's about mm, five pages, maybe. With me, it's four, four pieces of paper, four leaves of the book in. And then it's, uh, he shook his head, it's too late for them to leave us alone. <coughs> Do you see that? What page would that be in? It's page 127. What's that? It's page 127. 127? Yeah. Okay, everybody's got it? I'm going to actually start a little bit before that. I'm going to start on your previous page, but the section I want to focus on starts uh, where he says he shook his head. But let me introduce it by going back to the so-called hypotheticals. <clears throat> Jason followed my look. Obviously, he said they mean for us to do something. Who does? The hypotheticals, if we must call them that. And I suppose we must. Everyone does. They expect something from us. I don't know what. A gift, a signal, an acceptable sacrifice. How do you know that? Well, it's hardly an original observation. Why is the spin variable permeable to human artifacts like satellites, but not to meteors or even brownlee particles? Obviously, it's not a barrier. That was never the right word. Under the influence of the stimulant, Jace seemed particularly fond of the word obviously. Obviously, he said, is a selective filter. We know it filters the energy reaching the surface of the Earth. So the hypotheticals want to keep us, or at least the terrestrial ecology, intact and alive. But then why grant us access to space? Even after we attempted to nuke the only two spin-related artifacts anyone has ever found, what are they waiting for, Ty? What's the prize? Maybe it's not a prize. Maybe it's a ransom. Pay up and we'll leave you alone. Okay, so now, let me... This is the section I want you to read. I want you to... This next couple paragraphs is what I want to focus on. He shook his head. It's too late for them to leave us alone. We need them now. And we still can't rule out the possibility that they're benevolent, or at least benign. I mean, suppose they hadn't arrived when they did. What were we looking forward to? A lot of people think we were facing our last century as a viable civilization. Maybe even as a species. Global warming overpopulation, the death of the seas, the loss of arable land, the proliferation of disease, the threat of nuclear or biological warfare. We might have destroyed ourselves, or at least it would have been our own fault. Would it though? Whose fault exactly? Yours? Mine? No, it would have been the fault, it would have been the result of several billion human beings making relatively innocuous choices to have kids drive a car to work, keep their job, solve the short-term problems first. When you reach the point at which even the most trivial acts are punishable by the death of the species, then obviously, obviously, you're looking at a critical juncture, a different kind of point of no return. What do you think from all of that? What do we get from this passage? What do you get from this passage? Well, 
what's political that's going on here that's important for us? First of all, it's talking about events that are very real to us, right? That's why I wanted to end the course with this book. I mean, these list of problems, they are us. Those, those are the problems that we are facing. Global warming, all the other problems. I mean, look at the weather we're having. The whole United States is wacko with regard to the world's, with regard to the uh, the, uh, the weather, and it's happening all over the world at the same time. I mean, it's not supposed to be this kind of weather in late November. The whole eastern side of the country is between 5 and 20 degrees higher than normal. This is apparently the hottest year ever recorded on the planet, ever. And each year is getting worse. And you still have complete lockdown in the Congress as to whether global warming is real. Meaning if you have any 100 group of scientists, you'll find two that will say there's global warming is not real. But if you have a political system that has vested interests in both sides, you'll have half of the political system supporting those or getting those two political those two scientists that say global warming is not real to speak up. So those two polit- those two scientists are actually having an impact in the debate of global warming equivalent to half of all of the scientists. It's disproportionate to their numbers. Most serious scientists, the vast majority, like close to 100%, say the issue of global warming is not really debatable anymore. It's really there. But if you look at our political system, we are clearly not there yet. Because given a context of global warming, we should be doing something about it or we're going to burn ourselves off this planet. It's a really serious issue. And clearly you should see that we're not dealing with it. Now, how do you connect that to this, to this passage? Whatever the thing that's covering the earth has saved humanity because it allowed them to go now, back to their everyday life. Now, is it is it is the are they saying that for sure? Who's ever doing this is out to save humanity? No, they're saying it's an effect of what they've done, not necessarily that that was their goal. Actually, they're they're more like speculating about that. But what have they concluded? You're yeah. getting very close. They have concluded one thing. That um, if the trends had continued the way they were before this happened, then people wouldn't have been able to continue with their everyday lives because it would have gotten to the point where the bottom yeah the bottom line is they're speculating about whether the hypotheticals are benign or possibly good, and then they're comparing it just as you said now, even if the hypotheticals aren't understandable, we're we're kids in a in a sandbox with loaded guns. We're, 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 possible, we're, we're capable of killing ourselves independent of that. So we really don't know what the hypotheticals are doing. But what we are knowing is that this is a critical juncture. You have to understand, up until this point in our history, we were never really able to kill ourselves. We were never really able to kill ourselves. We could have mass slavery. You've had it in ancient Egypt. Rome was a slave society. You had the United States as a slave society in its beginning years. You had the Holocaust happening in World War II. You had related Holocausts happening in Uganda, Rwanda, Cambodia. You have all types of funky things, bad things going on. But we never had the ability to completely snuff us out. (laughs) Do you get the idea? 
now we are getting that capability. So this is a critical juncture for us. And what Robert Charles Wilson is actually noting is that this book is timely because it parallels our situation right now. And the question is, if you are an extraterrestrial species like the hypotheticals, at what point do you intervene? At what point? You certainly don't want to mess around with them early on. What, what benefit is it? But at what point do you intervene? And we sort of covered a little bit of this yesterday, I mean, last on Tuesday. But what about at the point in which critical decisions could do it? And we're going to see when we get to the end of this book, that becomes a huge issue, especially with respect to time. Make sure you finish the book by Tuesday. I will be here, even though it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Remember, you're paying professors $190 a, a, an hour, so you want to get your money's worth, so even though it's before Thanksgiving, you show up. Now, also remember, have a passage that you want to read. You can see how many interesting passages there are in this book. All right, great. See you on Tuesday. Have a great weekend.